2: pregnant with my daughter, the only thing I wanted besides a good night's sleep was a mojito. Me too! I had never drank a mojito in my life and when I got pregnant I was like,
1: I feel like drinking a mojito.
3: I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. On today's podcast, producer Dalia Cologne gets a lesson in mojito making from the fifth generation owner of Florida's oldest restaurant, The Columbia. We'll also hear from a prominent food writer about the Tampa Bay area's burgeoning food scene and how relatively cheap real estate makes it all possible. Plus, our cookbook reviewer, Janet Keeler, talks about the indispensable charms of a real physical cookbook. But first, as the weather warms up, we do have adult beverages on our mind. Craft beer has become a big deal in Florida. In fact, it's one of the top states in the country in terms of economic impact. And brewing has a long history in Tampa. You can find out all about it at the Tampa Bay History Center, which has an exhibit called History by the Pint, Beer and Brewing in Tampa Bay. Rodney Kite-Powell is here. He is a historian with the Tampa Bay History Center. Hey, Rodney. Hi. So tell me about brewing in Tampa Bay. It started with the Florida Brewing Company in Ybor City in like the
0: 1800s. It was the Florida Brewing Company started by Vicente Martinez Ybor, the founder of Ybor City, in 1897. And uh, it was the first brewery in the entire state of Florida.
3: Was he from Cuba or was he from Spain? He was from
0: Spain. And so he had a cigar manufacturing business in Havana. He came to to Cuba as a fairly young man.
3: Where he put this brewery I think is really interesting because these were – there were springs there, natural Mm -hmm. springs, that had been sacred to Indians, to the Paleo-Indians for, I guess – well, thousands millennia. of years, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and that's you know, the the government spring, as it came to be called, was was not just important for the native people who had lived here, you say, for, for millennia, but uh, for the soldiers at Fort Brooke who first arrived here in the 1820s, and, and that fort, which is, was in downtown Tampa, was continuously occupied uh, until the early 1880s, and it was renowned, and so a very natural place. To put your brewery, because one of the most important things that goes in beer is the water.
3: Since he was a Spaniard who had been living in Cuba, identified with Cubans, was there anything different about the way they brewed their beer?
0: No. As a matter of fact, it was a German beer. It was a lager because that's the kind of beer that Americans were drinking. So that you was look at selling. Exactly. It was selling. So that's what Mr. Ebor did is he... Uh, pardon the pun, he tapped the expertise of Germans that were in the country, not necessarily here in Tampa, and brought them here so they would be able to manufacture a high-quality lager.
3: And their biggest market? Biggest market
0: was Cuba. Uh, When you get outside of the Tampa Bay area, or Tampa at the time, um, they exported beer to Cuba. They were, at one point, the largest exporter of beer to Cuba. And prior to Prohibition, breweries owned saloons. And so, you went to a saloon that was affiliated with Anheuser Busch or with the Florida Brewing Company. So the Columbia Restaurant started out as a saloon for the Florida Brewing Company.
3: Oh, really? Yeah. For the Florida Brewing Company, because they were all right there in Ybor City. Yes, yes. So Teddy Roosevelt came to town. He did with his Rough Riders. Yes, he had a. Had a brew, had a beer from the Florida brewery. You look skeptical.
0: Well, it's entirely possible. He was, at least he was here at the right time for that. There's a lot of myths about Roosevelt and others who the timing doesn't even work for. But yeah, the brewery was a year old and there was a lot of beer being consumed during the summer of 1898 and the buildup to the uh, Spanish-American War.
3: These were young men getting ready to go off to war. Absolutely. I wouldn't think they would
0: have a beer. Oh, my gosh. There were 30,000 young men that were here, not just the Rough Riders, but 30,000 soldiers, and they all were thirsty and looking for that last drink.
3: So then Prohibition hit in 1918. Yes. Uh, but Tampa didn't seem to pay much attention <laughs> to Prohibition at all.
0: No, and, and, and by... By 1918, most of the state had gone dry, but Tampa certainly had not because of a variety of factors of our just cultural makeup. But largely, though, because of the large immigrant community that we had, there was very little interest in going dry. And so They called
3: it the wettest dry city in the state it, or something it, like that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely was. And there's some wonderful examples of, of that and the people doing everything they can to get an elusive drink.
3: So Florida's history is so intertwined with Cuba's, and Fidel Castro's rise to power kind of caused the brewery, the Florida brewery, to go under because the U.S. then embargoed Cuba. Mm-hmm. And that really kind of put the kibosh on, on breweries for a while in Florida.
0: Well, you know, it, it was a transition time. You know, you think about the the big brands that were growing at that time in the post war era. We're talking about the 1950s and 1960s. Mm. Um, they could they could withstand having one market taken away because they are in dozens of markets. But you have a small brewery with these great connections to Cuba, as you mentioned, that can be really damaging. And so. At the same time that one market closes, you have other breweries literally opening up in the same area. You have the opening of the Anheuser Busch Brewery, you have the Schlitz brewery, you've got a county, Hillsborough County, that is actively trying to get new industries in the area. And sometimes it's at the expense of the smaller established businesses.
3: What what was the attraction for the big brewing companies? Why did Anheuser Busch locate in Tampa a kind of a mid-sized city.
0: It's about distribution. Beer is about freshness. Being able to deliver a fresh, cold product was really important. Thanks, Rodney. Oh, absolutely. It's been a real pleasure.
3: Rodney Kite-Powell is a historian with the Tampa Bay History Center. There's an exhibition called History by the Pine, Beer and Brewing in Tampa Bay. It's there right now. As Rodney mentioned, the Columbia Restaurant in Ybor City has been around for a long time. The Hernandez-Gonsmart family opened the restaurant in Tampa's historic Ybor City in 1905. And it's the home of some iconic Florida dishes like their Cuban sandwich and 1905 salad. Their mojito is also very popular. And producer Delia Colon visited the restaurant to find out more.
2: I'm here at the Columbia Restaurant in Ybor City in Tampa, and it's quiet, and that's only because it's not open yet. I'm here with Andrea Gonsmart-Williams, fifth-generation owner. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for being here. What are we making today? Today, we are making a mojito. It's 9 a.m., so that's perfect. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. You read my mind. All right, let's do this.
1: (laughs) You know, a lot of people are intimidated by trying to make a mojito at home or trying to make a sangria at home. But really, once you have the base of it, it's pretty easy. What we do is you got to start with a simple syrup, and we actually boil our simple simple syrup is a equal parts of water and sugar, which gives you that sweetness. And the idea behind making the simple syrup is the sugar will dissolve, obviously, easier into your drink if it's made into a simple syrup. We actually boil our simple syrup with mint in it, so that way you already have that essence of mint, so you don't have so much pressure to have to muddle. The mint, so hard to get that flavor in. So we've got a pitcher filled with ice and some of our mints, um, mint simple syrup. And it's pretty simple. You start with a any light rum of your choice. We are using Bacardi Superior today. That's what we use in our restaurants right now. But if you want to use something like a spiced rum or if you want to use a dark rum, there is no wrong choice. Everyone's taste is different. So go with what you want. Yeah, there's
2: really no wrong rum That is very true. Okay, just go on and pour the whole bottle in there. How many ounces
1: is that? That is... A 200 milliliter. Then we add some sparkling
2: water. What do you think it is about the mojito? It happens to be my favorite cocktail. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now seven... The only thing I wanted besides a good night's sleep was a mojito. Me
1: too. I had never drank a mojito in my life. And when I got
2: pregnant, I was like, I feel like drinking a mojito, which is the darndest thing when you're pregnant. (laughs) You know what? It's so refreshing. It's so refreshing, especially here in Florida. How popular is the drink here at the restaurant? It is super popular. It it probably comes in second to our sangria, but it is a perfect Florida cocktail. It is. It's like a little vacation in a glass and I'm smelling the mint already. Oh yeah, this is going to be good.
1: Now, if you don't want to make the simple syrup at home, uh, one trick would be to um, muddle it with some sugar because the sugar would actually help break up the mint leaves. So that's a little shortcut in case you're in a rush and you haven't had time to make the simple syrup.
2: Okay, that's a good tip. And then, of course, we have to add the lime. Okay, a good squeeze of lime, just with her bare hands. You've, you've done this a time or two. Yeah, I may have done this in the restaurant and at home a couple times.
1: <laughs> so we're adding about two and a half limes. Um, I always say when you're doing it at home, you could always add one lime, taste it, because you never know how much juice you're going to get out of a lime.
2: I always drop a couple of the rinds in there. It makes it look pretty. It does. It's got a nice bright green color, so you'll want to serve it in a clear glass, I would think.
1: So yes, we, we serve them in kind of an old-fashioned size glass, but you can put it in any size glass you want. We always garnish it with the mint leaves, with a lime wheel, and here at the restaurant we put a sugar cane stick in it.
2: Oh, nice touch. Go ahead and pour it into the glass. Pour one for yourself too, because this one's mine. <laughs> okay, shall we cheers? I think we should. All right, let's give it a taste nothing better than a mojito at 9 a.m. <laughs> it, is, it is almost the
1: weekend after all. Duty calls. You know what? It's so refreshing. So what's a good food to pair it with? It could go with a Cuban sandwich. It could go with a salad. It could go with barbecue. It could go with pizza. It's one of those things. If you like a mojito, it'll go with anything.
2: That's great. Well, it's going with me. So Andrea Gonsmart williams thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can find the Columbia
3: Restaurant's mojito recipe on our website, thezestpodcast.com. And Dalia wants everyone to know that although she may have craved a mojito, she did not drink when she was pregnant. Laura Riley was for many years the restaurant critic for the Tampa Bay Times, and she's a former critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Baltimore Sun. She has cooked professionally and is a graduate of the California Culinary Academy. In 2017, she was a Pulitzer and James Beard finalist, a James Beard finalist again last year. And Laura just recently moved to a position at the Washington Post writing about the business of food. She and I were on a panel recently about the international dining scene in the Tampa-St. Pete area. And afterwards, I pulled her aside to ask a few questions. We want to talk about the dining culture in Tampa Bay. And Tampa, St. Petersburg, this whole area, it's changed so dramatically. Your your dining guide, you said in your new dining guide, I've expanded our dining guide to nearly 100 restaurants. It's a reflection of what many national magazines seem to have breathlessly concluded in recent months. Tampa Bay is increasingly one of the country's more exciting dining
4: destinations. So, yay. Absolutely. And, and there's some really good reasons for that. I think that um, when you're in a market with really expensive real estate, you know, I, I, for years I covered um, restaurants in Silicon Valley and you know, Palo Alto, places that were enormously expensive to launch a restaurant. So you needed a lot of money. You needed to borrow a lot of money. And you needed to have a business model that was conservative, that had a kind of a track record. You weren't doing anything that was super outside the box. And I think that when you are in a market, if you look at the food markets around the country that have emerged as exciting and novel and and that people want to do destination travel to because of the food – it's, it's second tier cities where there's still affordable real estate. Um, so, you know, if you can, I think a lot of times if you look at the, the most exciting restaurants that have happened here in the Tampa Bay area, a lot of them are not corporate. They're not replicable. They're not, um, they're restaurants started by a, a, an individual or a couple, often by maxing out their credit cards, by borrowing a little bit from mom and dad. They're not, they don't have a a panel of of invest, you know, kind of angel investors who plunk down a million a piece and expect certain kind of metrics, you know. So it's a little bit more of a um, iconoclastic, you know, seat of the pants approach to to starting a business. And I think because of that, you get more variation, more novelty, some things that are a little unexpected. So before food started getting attention. Um, restaurants started getting
3: attention in this area. People started paying attention to the Tampa Bay area because of
4: its craft beer scene really picking up. And you've talked about that. Yeah, I think that so um, Joey Redner started Cigar City I think in 2007, um, and pretty swiftly a whole bunch of hobbyist beer makers from around the Tampa Bay area said to Joey, "Hey, I want to. I want to work there. I, you know, I'll I'll just volunteer. I'll you know." And so he got a a, a real kind of strong and avid following um, at Cigar City and became regional and then national. And then he really did kind of launch the career of a whole bunch of other brewers in this area. And he allowed them to, I mean, the, th- the thing about moving from craft, you know, home brewing to commercial brewing is, it's a scaling issue as it is in so many businesses. It's really hard to scale because the equipment is so different. And he was gracious enough to let a lot of people use his equipment and to try a bigger batch and to experiment with styles. So I think that that he brought attention um, to his brewery Uh, from around the country. But then he also launched the career of lots of other people. And that in turn caused a lot of beer enthusiasts from around the country to start looking at the Tampa Bay area as a serious market um, that that really was ambitious and trying some new styles and maybe um, not working in a particularly narrow paradigm. I think that that's something that's been interesting about the Tampa Bay area's beer scene is that it's it's a it's incredibly varied in terms of style and, you know, Goza and sour beers and, you know, the kind of the IPA mania. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting to watch. And definitely, I think for a lot of people, um, beer is the gateway drug to food, you know, that you, you get interested in beer, maybe you're a young guy, you're out of college, and you don't want to drink Budweiser anymore. And so you, you kind of get into craft beer, and you realize, wow, there are all these different flavors going on here. And it kind of sparks your interest in food at a higher level. So I think oftentimes those go hand in hand.
3: You mentioned that one of the problems with having a good dining culture in the Tampa Bay area may have been the lack of a
4: reputable culinary program. Yeah, I think that we, that is something that has been um, a real problem here forever, you know, as long as I've been in this market. I mean, if you're in Chicago or or DC or you know Northern California or LA or whatever there are um, two year accredited either they're an associate's degree or you know sometimes bachelor's um, programs uh, that immediately you have a whole bunch of fresh faced young people who you can have in your in the back of your kitchen mm-hmm. uh, and we have not really had that I and mean, we have some really emerging high school programs and some. Some, you know, uh, culinary programs where you can get an associate's degree, but they're college. not, yeah, they're not um, tremendously well thought of yet, and and they don't have a tremendous track record of placing people in great kitchens. So you need a critical mass of good restaurants that actually do invite people to come and stage. I mean, that's when you come and. Whether it's an unpaid internship or a very modestly paid internship, you come to the kitchen and you you spend a month and you and you you know you start wherever they put you, gar manger or peeling veggies or that kind of thing, and you kind of learn on the job. Um, that's a real you know, that kind of um, internship type approach is a is a very strong one in the. You know, in the in the professional kitchen, and we have not had that tradition here so much, and it's changing. I mean, I think there are restaurants like the Refinery or Rooster in the Till where they people from other parts of the country will come and do a stage in those kitchens, and then hopefully, in a in a good food market. Those people then peel off when they've learned enough and are feeling or chafing a little bit working under someone. They don't want to work for the man anymore. And then they go off and they start their own thing, whether that's a food truck that ends up being a brick and mortar, or just some very modest um, brick and mortar to begin with. I think that that's how you start having a critical mass of, of you know, exciting restaurant culture.
3: And We've seen chefs from New York, New York City, in the last few years start restaurants in st petersburg or tampa noel cruz of ichikoro is one that you know pretty well what was his reasoning for moving from Manhattan to
4: Tampa? I think that when I talk to chefs from, you know, other markets who've come here to set up shop, some of it is that other places are so competitive. I mean, I think that we all we all feel that way a little bit mm-hmm. just in terms of our own life choices. You know, sometimes a big urban center where everything is hard and getting your groceries and your dry cleaning and rents are high and it's it's super competitive to get attention. Um, I think there's something appealing about moving to a slightly calmer, quieter, less hysterical environment to do what you do. I think, you know, if we, if we look at people like um, Jessica and Lauren at the reading room, they were in Asheville working under someone else and they wanted to start their own place and they were thinking about Asheville, but it was a pretty heated market. So to get the kind of attention and the customer base that you want, um, it's hard to do right off the bat. And I think we still have enough um available real estate at a price point that is an entry-level price point here that has a draw, it's drawn a lot of a, a, you know attention from restaurateurs around the country. Thanks for being here, Laura. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: Despite the arrival of e-books, actual paper cookbooks are a star of the publishing world. There are so many to choose from, but how do we decide which to invest in? Our cookbook reviewer, Janet Keeler, talks about the qualities that make some stand out from the pack. Janet teaches journalism at USF St. Pete, is the founder and coordinator of the Graduate Food Writing and Photography Certificate Program, and the former food editor at the Tampa Bay Times. And she's the author of Cookie Licious: 150 Fabulous Recipes to Bake and Share. Janet also is a cookbook reviewer and the cookbook columnist for The Zest. Hey, Janet.
5: Hi. Thank you for having me. i love to sit here and talk to you about cookbooks.
3: So, you know, five years ago, we would have bet that cookbooks were on their way out because there was this thing called the e-cookbook. That was, it's really inexpensive. It's fast. You can download it when you feel like it and you have it. You really would have thought, well, what are people going to want to pay for these hardback, expensive, heavy cookbooks? But the fact is that cookbooks are doing really well in the publishing world. I mean, they're they're a success story. Uh, what do you what do you think it is?
5: Well, it, it is a success story. I think it, cookbooks in 2018 outsold cookbooks in 2017, which is phenomenal when you think about it and everybody talked about well we're going to be looking at stuff on our devices we're going to be looking at cookbooks on our phones or tablets or whatever and i do that sometimes and i bring them into the kitchen and i do that now that i'm not afraid to wreck them but i do sometimes have like goo on my hands and then i've got you know the screen goes away and then i got to go back and you know so so it's, so it's slightly cumbersome it's not a really great way to cook though i do look for recipes online do you find that i'll i'll look for recipes online and I'll
3: make it. and It'll be great. And then I won't remember later where I found it or, you know, I, I won't be able, if I don't print it out, <laughs> Which kind of defeats the purpose. I can never remember where I got that recipe from, whereas a cookbook is right there, and you can turn to page 50, and you've got the page turned down, and you've got your fingerprints all over it, and olive oil splashed on it, and you know where to find that recipe.
5: Well, it's funny that you you bring that up, because I do that often. I'm notorious for doing that. I find the recipe, I make it, and then I never can find it again. Was it here? uh, Was it there? Where was it? Yeah. Um, You mentioned... How you can mark a cookbook with the, the dog-eared page or the uh, you know the splatters or something. I think that's one thing that's really really um, charming about cookbooks mm-hmm. is the ones that are used show you they've been used. You know when you have, if you ever inherit cookbooks from anybody and you you open those you just those splattered pages are everything. Oh, I'm what is And you
3: see your grandmother's note. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that she halved the sugar or something like that. Right. I don't know. There's something really <laughs> special about it and. The photography often is beautiful. Sometimes, to me, they look more like coffee table right. books than cookbooks. Right. They are beautiful. I'm thinking especially of the uh, the uh,
5: Yotam Otolenghi books. Right. I think are gorgeous. Right, and I also think for me, mm-hmm. a cookbook it represents inspiration. I love a cookbook that inspires me to get into the kitchen, and I don't get that so much online. Online, I'm like, what am I going to make tonight? I have chicken, I have this, and I have a few other things. What can I make? Or a quick, some sort of quick thing. But if I really want to sit down and plan something, a cookbook provides inspiration for me. So that's that's that, I think, is one of the, um, one of the characteristics that you can't, you don't get so much online. There's and some they- great websites, but a cookbook really does that. You can sit it with it in your lap and really kind of delve into it.
3: And the cookbooks provide stories.
5: Yes. Right. I think, that's, I think that's really true. I did a little crowdsourcing on a Facebook page uh, I belong to. Just asked, what do you guys, you know, what do you look for in a cookbook? Got about 50 replies. And I would say stories came up at least 75% of the time. Wow. People really uh, resonate with that. So this, yeah. Hmm. Glad Th- to know
3: I hit on something there. So that is something I did want to talk to you about. What do you look for in a cookbook? There's a lot out there right now.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting what you look for in a cookbook can change over the years. You know, when I was, when I was much younger and single and uh, dated a guy who would eat anything, I would, could spend all Saturday cooking. And if it took me five or six stores to get the ingredients for this very involved recipe, I had no problem doing that. You had then, the time. Yeah, I had the time. And over the years, I sort of lost that time. And so I, I, I tend to now look for cookbooks where when I look at them, well, first of all, f- photographs. And I need photographs. And that's when I, on this Facebook page, that's what almost everybody said. They have to have photos. I sort of want to see how it's going to look. And what it should look like. Yeah, what finished. you're aiming for, right. which, of course, is a little deceiving because, you know, they have stylists and cooks and prop people and all kinds of fantastic photography. So sometimes your your version doesn't really look like that. But at least I kind of get an idea. Mm-hmm. But that does create the... the um inspiration for me. Oh, that's really neat. That looks great. I'm going to try that. Then I look for, I look at, I really look at the ingredients list. Like, okay, can I get this stuff? Is it around here? Am I going to have to go to five stores? Am I going to have to mail order something? Now, maybe I want to do that. If it's a big holiday meal, maybe I want to think that far in advance. But a lot of times I don't. Um, so I'm just looking for things. Would would my family eat this? Can I make it in a decent amount of time? So what I look for in a cookbook kind of changes over time.
3: Yeah, so it, it has to
5: sort of fit your own personal lifestyle yeah. and preferences. They want to know. Now, the the people on the Facebook page, all of them said well-tested recipes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how well you can tell that when you're at the bookstore thumbing through a, a cookbook. But I think... For me, if I, the publisher is kind of, a good publisher, should ensure that that's happening. I think that's why a lot of people like cookbooks from celebrities too.
3: I was going to ask you yeah. that. So, if you see a cookbook from a celebrity, I guess you would assume, say Joanna Gaines, mm-hmm. I mean, her cookbook's Gone Gangbusters. Right. Um, you kind of assume that the publisher wouldn't let that come out. With some bad recipes in it. They're going to protect that celebrity.
5: Right. But the Washington Post just did a story on that cookbook, Magnolia Table, um, uh, about, how, you know, it was the best selling cookbook of 2018. And how come it didn't get much press, which is sort of interesting, you know, it sold like a million copies already. And that's kind of unheard of. So why didn't it? I think because of a couple reasons. Well, they tested some recipes and they didn't turn out very well, so that's kind of interesting. It's not a it's not a cookbook that gets a lot of attention. You know, well, we'll see in award season, cookbook award season when that comes, it probably won't won't uh, get to that level. I think there's a little bit of like she's a lifestyle person that you know came to fame on HGTV with the Fixer Upper show, and there's a little bit I think. Well, what does she know about cooking?
3: uh-huh to, to write
5: a cookbook i think there's a little that bit of feeling like snobbery to me. Oh, there can be a little bit of that and food media can be a little bit like that i know because i was in it for 15 years so it could be mm-hmm. a little bit like well who's that you know christy tegan's another one with her, her her cravings cookbooks um and i was like that at first i thought well what does she know about cooking she's a model but then i looked at him and i thought there's a heck of a fun story there yeah she, whoever she's working with, and I imagine they all work with somebody. They're not probably writing every word of these cookbooks by themselves. But there's a neat story there, and they're, the, the recipes are fun mm-hmm. in that cookbook. So it's, that's an interesting, an interesting issue with the celebrities. Um, where you can look at people like uh, Reed Drummond, the Pioneer Woman, or Ina Garten. Uh, or I
3: was thinking of. Well, Trish Yearwood. Right.
5: Who's got a show. Right. I mean, she,
3: obviously, so she must know something about cooking because she's got her cooking show. Right.
5: So somehow that, I think, maybe gives it more credence in the in mm-hmm. the food media's mind. I mean, they're actually on TV cooking and, you know, I right. mean.
3: Not fixing up a house, not decorating.
5: Right. And opening a restaurant and a shopping complex and everything else. I mean, it's all part of a very carefully crafted business empire mm-hmm. that the Gaines have, which, you know, I don't see really anything wrong with that. But I think that may be why it didn't get the kind of attention someone else might get.
3: Well, Janet, I look forward to hearing about cookbooks with you on The Zest. Thank you so much.
5: Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to it, too.
3: We've got to go, but come back to the table next week. We'll be talking to the best-selling Southern writer, Rick Bragg. Visit us at thezestpodcast.com for recipes, and be sure to subscribe to The Zest on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Sussingham, Dalia Cologne and I produce The Zest with help from Mark Hayes and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.